If you'd open to John chapter 20, John 20, we'll consider, continue our study of John and we'll start in verse 1 and read through verse 10. This is the Word of God. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So again, Father, we ask once more that these events that happened on that first day of the week, that first Easter Sunday, would land on us freshly, that we would receive by faith the account preserved for us in this text, and that You would change us by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the, uh, the children of the church actually said to me, uh, this week, um, finding out that we were getting back into the Gospel of John, they were saying that, uh, are, are we getting back into these narratives? I think everyone's excited about the narratives. And uh, I said, I'm most excited about the narratives. My favorite uh, type of Scripture to study is, is biblical narrative, especially these resurrection accounts. And um, one of the dangers in studying narratives, especially ones we're very familiar with, is that we would uh, assume we know these stories already. Uh, another danger would be that we would already know the conclusion or how the story ends and we would read too much into some of the things that are happening uh, because of that. Um, so the best way to read a narrative is to treat them like we're hearing them for the first time and and then to try to insert ourselves into those narratives and think, and in our case, what if I would have walked in that empty tomb? What would I have thought if I were to enter that empty tomb? Um, and I, I don't think that's an elementary, uncareful way to handle the, uh, the text. I think that's actually a very profound and thoughtful way to handle these and study them. Some of you all know... Um, a Princeton professor, his name was uh, Johannes Voss, um, about 150 years ago, he taught at Princeton. He was very influential on uh, Machen and Van Til and uh, many other men 
uh, very brilliant but hard to understand, but he has a famous sermon on John 20, and here's how he opens that, that sermon. He says, we have learned to read the story of our Lord's life and death so as to consider the resurrection is its only possible outcome. And this has to some extent dulled our senses for the startling character of what took place. We interpret the resurrection in terms of the atoning cross and easily forget how little the disciples, uh, how, how little the disciples were as to yet prepared for doing the same. And so it required an effort on our part to understand sympathetically the state of mind they brought to the morning of this day. Nevertheless, we, may, we must try to enter into their thoughts and feelings if for no other reason than for this, that something of the same fresh marvel and gladness that subsequently came to them may fill our hearts also. And then this is where I want to go and... Uh, the unpacking of this, what he says next, he says, they had little remembrance of Jesus' words about the resurrection and drew from them no practical support or comfort for the sorrow that overwhelmed them. And I think he's right about that. When you read this first account uh, that we just read, you, you can tell they're not getting any comfort that Jesus is about to resurrect. That doesn't even seem to be on their minds. At this point, and Voss goes on to say something even more shocking. He says this shows that mindlessness regarding the resurrection, when the dreadful realities of life and death assail us, is very dangerous. And so Voss is a very interesting preacher because he actually approached the resurrection as if life and death were imminent realities for everyone he was speaking to. And, he, and he, he approached preaching like the Apostle Paul who said, if Christ has not been risen, then our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. And, and that's a rare way to approach preaching, but it is the way that we should treat texts like this. I want us to look at the empty tomb uh, this morning, and I just want to bring out two simple points from this for us to think on. And here's the first one. The empty tomb is not enough. I want to argue for a minute that the empty tomb is insufficient proof of the resurrection. Uh, that is the primary thing that jumped out at me reading this this week um, in these first 10 verses is that the empty tomb is not enough. And I'm, I'm quite aware that I am in the very small minority of preachers that will stand on an Easter Sunday and say... The tomb, the empty tomb, was not enough to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I get what I'm saying. I understand that I'm in the minority. I know the pop radio songs all say the empty tomb is all we need. Uh, in fact, there's one uh, song that's titled, The Empty Tomb Says It All. And it repeats that phrase throughout the song, the empty tomb says it all, the empty tomb says it all. And I'm up here saying the empty tomb does not say it all. Uh, it is insufficient to prove the resurrection. And many preachers today will slam hands on pulpits and yell, I forget about all the arguments, forget about all the theological arguments and all this stuff. All I need is an empty tomb. All you need is an empty tomb. And maybe for that preacher, maybe for 
some, the empty tomb is sufficient. Uh, I don't believe for these first eyewitnesses it was sufficient. They needed more than an empty tomb to say that He is risen. That, that was not their first reaction walking into the tomb. They needed more proof. And so I want to look at these women. I want to then look at the men. Let's start in verse 1. Uh, it'll mention Mary Magdalene here. Let me just uh, acknowledge we have three other gospel accounts. And in those gospel accounts, it doesn't only mention Mary Magdalene. It mentions uh, other another Mary and other women who were also coming. And we'll get into more of that next week, why that is. But um, it is maybe worth saying as well that in, in Mark 16, it says that as these women are approaching the tomb, they're not coming ready to celebrate the resurrection. It says the thing that they're talking about is who's going to roll away the stone for us? There's this heavy rock in front of it. How are we going to get in? That's what they're actually talking about as they, uh, as they walk up. But verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. So here's what she sees. All she knows is the rock has been removed and the tomb is empty. Look what it says in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said to them, here's her conclusion about the empty tomb. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we don't know where they've laid Him. That's what the empty tomb does for her. Somebody stole the body. And then she says it again in verse 13. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. So the empty tomb doesn't for her, just initially seeing it, make her think, He's risen. It doesn't do that for her, and it doesn't do that for many people. Um, in fact, one of the popular historical theories to argue against the resurrection <clears throat> started on this same uh, Sunday. In Matthew 28, 11, it says some of the guards came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. That is, after the tomb was empty. And when they had assembled with the elders in council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say this, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. That's what they're to spread. If this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they, gave, and they took the money and did uh, as they had been instructed. And this story has been widely spread among the Jews to this day. And that is no small theory. Um, we know from Justin Martyr in AD 160 that that was being told in the 1st and 2nd century. We know by Tertullian in AD 210, uh, he acknowledged that in the 3rd century this was still being spread. A uh, modern atheist, uh, Richard Carrier, promoted the idea that the body of Jesus was stolen from the tomb, uh, saying this. He said, the hypothesis is plausible. By no means certain, but the body of Jesus could have been stolen. Now, he didn't give any evidence. He didn't try to argue with any type of proof for this, but he tried to keep the idea alive. And my, re my response to all of that would be, Sure, it is possible that these fishermen and ta tax collector who weren't SEAL Team 6 took out the tactically trained Roman guards. Uh, that is possible. 
that uh, even though the Roman government gave them the commission, make it as secure as you can. Your life depends on this. Your job depends on this. Um, it is possible that, uh, that they were overthrown by some scrawny Jewish fishermen in their 20s and a few women. And they took out these guards in hand-to-hand combat. I mean, I feel like that story would have come out eventually, especially as Christianity began to rise and gain popularity the, the coming months and years. A few of these fishermen of Jesus' group took out all these soldiers, but that story was never told. Uh, it is possible that it wasn't the disciples at all, but grave robbers uh, that could have skipped all the graves that didn't have guards in front of them and gone to the the grave that had guards in front of them, taken out those guards, um, and then walked in by lantern or by some sort of torch into this dark tomb and began to unravel Jesus' body of these expensive ointments and and linens that they could have sold, no doubt, and then nicely fold up the face cloth over to the side. I mean, I guess it is possible. <laughs> um, I, I'm just trying to get us to think uh, about the guards being removed, the stole, stone being rolled away, the clothes being nicely folded, and the tomb being empty. And just because there aren't any logical reasons for how that could have happened, just because we don't have any eyewitnesses or historical information doesn't mean that it is absolutely 100% proof that Jesus resurrected. It's true. And so here's what I'm saying. I'm saying I actually agree with the skeptics. I actually agree with the critics who don't find the empty tomb alone a conclusive argument or proof for the resurrection. And I don't because Mary didn't when she walked in and neither did John or neither did Peter. And so let's look at these men. It says in verse 3, Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I just, I never know why that's there. <laughs> why he had to, uh, it sounds like bragging. I don't I'm not going to say John's bragging, but he is highlighting twice actually here that he, beat Peter in the race to the tomb. Um, Verse 5, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there, the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, uh, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And so some have read that and said, you know what happened? These guys know what's inside this tomb because they went in there and they did steal the body and they started the religion. And they pin it to John and Peter as the ones who started a religion. Now, even the harshest critics of Christianity don't really go with that argument because of the lives of Peter and John, and the other apostles after this. They don't fit the criteria uh, for people who start religions. Usually those who start religions get rich, they live in luxurious homes, they eat exotic foods, 
They have multiple wives. Uh, these men stay faithful to one wife, uh, avoid all scandals, never make money in ministry. In fact, they intentionally stay poor. They preach about Jesus and not themselves, and they all suffer terribly the rest of their lives, and most of them live and die uh, rather terrible deaths. Peter was hung upside down. John was exiled by himself at the Isle of Patmos and died there alone. And so their lives don't match the profile of those who would start a new religion. And additionally, uh, Christianity wasn't advanced because of the claim that the tomb was empty. Christianity was advanced because of the claim that hundreds of eyewitnesses had seen Jesus alive after his death. That was the message that pushed Christianity forward. 1 Corinthians 15, 6, if, if Paul says, if you don't believe Jesus resurrected, ask the 500 eyewitnesses who saw him at one time. Most of them are still alive. That's how the message went forth. Uh, but, but to be theologically precise, why did two men enter into the tomb? I, I, I believe uh, it was because of Deuteronomy 19.15 that said two witnesses are needed for a legal testimony in a court of law. It was a verifiable proof. And so here's my point. Uh, the empty tomb alone wasn't enough for them at that point. And verse 10 says the disciples went back to their home. And now we go, well, what was enough? And I'm glad you asked. That's the second point. Uh, number two, to believe, we need an empty tomb plus an understanding of the Scriptures regarding the resurrection. We need an empty tomb plus an understanding of the Scriptures to talk about a resurrection. Now stay with me on this because I want you to see I'm getting this from the text. Verse 8 says, The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, also went in. And he, John speaking of himself, he said, He saw and believed. Now, that sounds like he believed in the resurrection. And I've got two reasons why I don't think that's what it means. Uh, and the first is this. We need to ask the question, what did John see and believe? Remember, Mary just came to him and said, the tomb's empty. Somebody stole the body. And then John and Peter run to the tomb and they go and look in. And after they look in and put their own eyes into the tomb... It says they saw and believed. Believed what? Believed Mary's testimony that the tomb was empty. That's what I believe that they're believing. They're believing her testimony, the tomb is empty. Now, the further more convincing proof is the verse right after verse 9, uh, which says this. Let's read the whole thing together again. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for, verse 9, as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So please hear me. Peter and John absolutely believed in the resurrection. Okay, We will see that as we go on. Just not yet is all I'm saying. Not at the tomb. Not only seeing the tomb. And again, verse 9 seems to be clear. It says, for or because they did not understand the Scripture that He must rise from the dead. Now, if it would have said, uh, because they did understand the Scripture, 
that Christ must rise from the dead, that would be a different story. But it says they did not understand the Scripture, that Christ must rise from the dead. Which again makes me conclude the empty tomb alone was not enough. So what's enough? Read verse 9 again and look at it, and I think it tells us what's enough. Understanding the Scriptures that He must rise from the dead is enough. This is very important to see. When Jesus, in just a few days, He's going to begin to appear to disciples. He he appears to disciples on a beach. Uh, When they're fishing, He's going to appear to two men walking on the road to Emmaus. Uh, which, in, in, Well, in, in both of these cases, he's going to bring up the Scriptures. He's going to keep bringing up the Scriptures to them. But let's look at the one in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. So the road to Emmaus, this is seven miles, it says, outside of Jerusalem, which in and of itself is uh, interesting that Jesus shows up there. But these men are walking. Jesus shows up and interrupts them and says, what's wrong? And they say, this Jesus that they just crucified, we had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. And it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They, they were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find His body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who, who said that He was alive. Some of those who were with us at the tomb, that's talking about uh, Peter and John, found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Him. He said to them, this is what Jesus says to these men, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. He doesn't rebuke them for not believing the empty tomb. He rebukes them for being slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. And He said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. So he didn't go up to these two men walking on the road and say, why was the empty tomb not enough for you? My body clearly wasn't there. It was empty. Why didn't you believe? That's not the rebuke. The rebuke was, why did you not believe the Old Testament prophets? Why did you not believe the Scriptures that predicted the resurrection? And you say, well, what Scriptures is Jesus referring to? There's a lot, but I'll give you just a few. Um, Genesis 22, uh, the account of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham goes to sacrifice his son Isaac, this is very interesting. Many times we overlook what's going on here. God tells him, take your son, your only son, up to this mountain and give him as a sacrifice And we don't know what's going on in Abraham's mind from Genesis 22. It doesn't tell us. Hebrews 11 does tell us what was happening in in Abraham's mind. What enabled Abraham to take his only son of promise up that mountain, put the wood on his son's shoulders, grab a knife, tie his son down, raise the knife over his son? Hebrews 11 says, here's what enabled him to do that. He knew that God was able to raise him from the dead. Not spiritually raise him, physically raise him, because Isaac was to have offspring in which God promised him that he would have. 
So, so Abraham had a belief in a physical resurrection that early on in Scripture. Now look, we could even take a step back before Abraham to Job. We talked about this the other day. That Job, which I believe is the first book written in the Bible, chronologically, um, in Job, Job says this, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end He will stand on the earth. That after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I myself will see Him with my own eyes, I and not another. That is an incredibly rich doctrine of the resurrection that Job has before Abraham was alive. Before Moses, before David, before all the prophets, before Abraham, Job has a understanding that he is going to, in his own flesh, with his own eyes, see his living Redeemer on the earth. The religious leaders in Matthew 12 come to Jesus at one point and they say, what sign do you show us so that we'll believe? And Jesus then gives the rebuke, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. The only sign you'll get is a sign of Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. And you can imagine, they're thinking, we're asking for a sign. Why are you going to tell us about uh, Old Testament character Jonah. What does that have to do with anything? And then Jesus makes this connection. He says, so must the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And he goes, that's your sign. The Old Testament prophet Jonah is the sign that I will die and resurrect. That's all the proof you need to believe in me. John 20, 29, we'll see this later in our chapter, but he said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Jesus, what, what I'm saying is Jesus is overwhelmingly convinced. It is superior to believe Him based on the scriptural testimony rather than even seeing Him with our own eyes. That's a superior act of faith. Which is encouraging to those of us who didn't get to walk into the tomb or touch His nail-pierced hands or see Him. Here's what I want to do the rest of the time. I want to look at just verse 9. There's six words. There's six words here I want to look at. He must rise from the dead. And really that word must is where I want to put the emphasis. So why must He rise from the dead? That's, that's what I want to ask. Why must He rise from the dead? The Old Testament and the New Testament say He must rise from the dead. Why did the Scripture say that? Answer number one. He must rise because the Scripture said He must rise from the dead. I know I just got done saying that. I'm going to say it again. He must rise from the dead because the Old Testament Scripture said He would. And God doesn't lie, and God keeps His promises. And if God says Jesus will rise, then Jesus will rise. He must rise, it says. John 2, 18, uh, 
the Jews actually come to him another time. It's very similar to the story I just talked about. But they say, what sign do you give us to believe? And at this point, he doesn't talk about Jonah. um, But he says this, destroy this body or this temple, he says, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they're going, it it took, what, 46 years to build the temple? And you'll raise it up in three days? And it says they didn't know he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and listen to what it says, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Matthew 22-23, the Sadducees came to him who said there's no resurrection so they're trying to back him in a corner on this issue of the resurrection. And they give him a little story. If a man dies and he's married to this woman and then she marries the seven brothers and they all die, whose who's is she in the resurrection? And they think they've tricked Jesus and Jesus says, you're wrong. You're just wrong. Uh, because you know neither the Scriptures or the power of God. He says, for in the resurrection they neither marry or are given a marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? You see how Jesus keeps going back to the Old Testament Scriptures. What was said already should be sufficient proof to believe. Luke 24. uh, uh, Jesus appears to the disciples. They see Him. They touch Uh, They eat a meal with him, and then Jesus does this. He's like, okay, we've gotten that out of the way. You've all seen me. I'm here. Now listen. Sit down. We're going to open the Scriptures. And he said this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures that said, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead. This is Jesus' vernacular. This is His words. This is His vocabulary. Keep saying the Scriptures. I've already said this. You should have known this. It's been told to you already. And so why does He rise? Because God said He must rise from the dead. And He had been saying it a long time before it happened. Number two, He must rise because... It's not possible for death to hold him. He must rise because it is not possible for death to hold him. Acts 2, uh, God is speaking through Peter and says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And listen to how Peter reasons this. For David says, and then he quotes Psalm 16, My flesh will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You shall make me, uh, you shall make me full of gladness with your presence. He's quoting, he quotes from uh, Psalm 16. And then listen to Peter's conclusion. He says this, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That God would raise Him up. So, think about this. As Jesus is taken off the cross and His body is just limp, 
His head is limp. His arms are limp. You've seen pictures and images where they try to depict this. He's limp. Everything, gravity is pulling down. He needed people to carry his heavy, drooping body weighed down by gravity. He needed people to lift him and put him in whatever spot he was wrapped up and laid in the tomb. And he was laying because of gravity. The Scripture said he must rise. And he must do it on the third day after death. And and here's what I want us to think about. He must rise. He must go up. Because the Scripture said so. And Jesus said so. He says, I have authority to lay down my life and I have authority to take it up again. Not only has the Old Testament said this, Christ has predicted this numerous times. I have authority to die when I want to die and to rise when I want to rise. And when Jesus set up in that tomb early Sunday morning, taking off those grave linens, folding them up next to Him and placing them in the corner, when the angels rolled back the rock and took the Roman guards out without laying a finger on the Roman guards, and the tomb was empty and opened, it wasn't because Jesus needed to be let out. It was because all the eyewitnesses needed to be let in. And not just to see the empty tomb, but seeing the empty tomb to then finally be convinced and to understand the Scripture said that would happen. He must rise. The Scriptures said He would rise. And the tomb is empty. What other conclusion can we come to? The Scriptures have said it. And I hope everybody understands this. Gravity pulls all things down in a world of death. In a world cursed by death, gravity pulls downward. Everything goes downward. Christ, in the new world He's creating, brings everything upward. A, a new law of nature, if we could call it that, or a new nature like the divine nature that was first in Christ must be in us if we are going to go upward. He must rise us up. The Christ's gravitational pull upward is always stronger than death's downward. Christ must rise. We must rise with Him. And the gravity that couldn't hold Him down cannot hold His people down. They must rise with Him. The opposite of gravity is occurring in His body. Because God said He must rise. There's a, a very interesting, this is a very strange uh, thing that, that happened in Matthew 27. People often avoid it because it just seems odd to them. But it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This is when Jesus was dying. The, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. So an earthquake happens, and the rocks were split. And then it says, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And people go, that is just... At, at, that, at the moment of the resurrection, all these other tombs open up, and all these other people come out of the tomb and walk around in the city? And I believe the reason God did this is a little prophetic picture that the gravitational spiritual pull of Christ 
coming up out of death that the Father's hand bringing Him up was so strong, it pulled up others with Him. And, and I can confirm this. It's not my own speculation. Ephesians 2.8 says, We were dead in our trespasses, and God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him. So in the same movement of Christ coming up, His people come up. The same power that raised Christ raises us. According to Ephesians 2, that same reality is at work in us. Because He must rise, His people must rise with Him. Which leads to the third and last point. He must rise because He is the first of those who will be made alive forever. He is the first of those who will be made alive forever. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 says, Christ has raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at His coming, at His second coming, those who belong to Christ. Um, people wonder to themselves, Christians wonder this as well, why am I so emotionally down? We'll say it like that. That'll even be the way we describe it. Emotionally down. Depressed people say, I'm downcast. I'm depressed, I'm lonely, I'm sad, I'm discouraged. I'm downcast. Tired people say, I'm down on energy. Uh, we call sin falling into sin. Hell is described as being down, below, under, beneath. And my point is this. In Adam, everything pulls down. The Adamic gravity moves fallen people down. Broken things fall down. The first Adam pulls us down. But the second Adam raises us up. That's the reality of the resurrection. For as by one came death, by a man also shall come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so what does the empty tomb mean for us? It means that the Scriptures are true when they say He must rise. But it also, the empty tomb is the first fruits that our tombs will be empty one day. That our tombs will be empty. It's a prophetic picture that our tombs will also be found with no body and no bones. One day our tombs will be empty like His. And what other conclusion will people be able to draw from that other than as He raised up, as Christ raised, He raised others up with Him because the Scriptures said that would happen. Amen? That's our hope. I hope it fills us with great hope as we come to the table. Um, I want to just transition us to the table Scripture says that uh, there are those that have been buried with Him by baptism and raised 
to walk in the newness of life. I believe those are the ones that Christ has invited to the table. Buried with Christ, raised to walk in newness of life, and demonstrated uh, through that act of burial and resurrection and baptism. The table uh, is for you. It's for you to rejoice and to hope and to glory in what Christ has done uh, for you. If that is not true of you, we'd ask you to refrain. And there are, and if you got one of the red bulletins, some meaningful prayers you can pray uh, in this time. And I just want to ask all of us to think about, there's a song we're going to sing as we take the supper, the band's going to sing. I want us to think about these lyrics because it connects the death of Christ, which we remember here, with the resurrection. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. At one with Him, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. With Christ my Savior and my God. Father, we praise You. You have thoroughly demonstrated to us in real life, in actual history, that You have power over the grave, that You have power over death, that the, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Lord, we also have heard this from the beginning. You've said it. You've told us and told us and told us and told us that You would do these things. And so Father, we pray that we would believe Your Word and find great liberation and freedom and life in those words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.